We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61. Isaiah, chapter 61. We read this chapter in connection with the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Call your attention especially to the opening verses of this chapter. These are verses which Christ himself read in the synagogue of Nazareth, applying them unto himself as the Lord's anointed, the Christ. We hear the word of God in Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Thus far we read from God's infallibly inspired word, I said I would call your attention especially to the first two verses of this chapter, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. In harmony with this passage and all of Holy Scriptures, the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31, which we find on page 8 in the back of the Psalter. Question 31. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Near the beginning of his ministry, while visiting his hometown of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus described his work as the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah 61, these opening verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Having read the passage there in the synagogue, a passage that Jesus had deliberately chosen, Jesus announced This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This does not mean that this was the only thing Jesus said or that this was just the opening sentence of his sermon. No, this was really the theme of the message which he preached. He preached the gospel unto them. He preached comfort unto the miserable. He preached to the poor in spirit, to those who were poor because of the lack of righteousness, poor because they themselves had no spiritual riches. He preached concerning the brokenhearted, brokenhearted because of true sorrow over sin, true sorrow after God. He spoke to the captives, those who were captives of sin and death. He spoke to the blind, those who were in darkness because of their sin and iniquity. He spoke to the bruised, those bruised by calamity and misery and oppression. He spoke of deliverance, 
The gospel brings good tidings to the poor and captives, the blind and naked. The gospel of God, which he preached, promised healing and deliverance. He promised freedom from the bonds of sin and death. It promised light to those who were in spiritual darkness. It was an exceedingly wonderful sermon, a sermon full of comfort for the spiritually minded, for those who looked for salvation. But our Lord applied this portion of Scripture to himself as God's anointed Son. The gospel which he preached there in Nazareth was the gospel of Christ himself. The text in Isaiah spoke of him who was the very realization of the gospel. This day, at this very moment, the word of the prophet is completed. That means, Jesus taught, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I, Jesus of Nazareth, am anointed of God to preach the gospel to sinners. I have come to heal broken hearts and to preach deliverance. I give sight to the blind. I give liberty to the bruised. I preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Yea, I am the Christ. Beloved, to say, I believe in Christ implies not only that I believe that there is a Christ, but that I believe in the Christ of God, the Christ of Scripture for me. And more, which Lord willing we focus upon next Lord's Day, I believe that I partake of his anointing. The question which later in his ministry Jesus asked of his disciples comes also to us today. Whom say ye that I am? It's in this light that we consider this morning question and answer 31 under the theme God's anointed son. And we notice first of all the Christ. Secondly his threefold office and finally, our faith in him. That name Christ, which means, in, which is in the Hebrew, Messiah, means the anointed. In the previous Lord's Day, we've seen that Jesus, or Jehovah Salvation, is his personal name which he received of God by means of the angel even before his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the personal name which teaches us who he is. Christ, on the other hand, is the mediator's official name, his title, which teaches us what he is. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king of God. 
The name Christ speaks of the servant of Jehovah as he is officially called, ordained, and qualified to be the office bearer of God, the mediator, the head of the covenant, was only gradually during his earthly ministry that Jesus became known as the Christ. Gradually he became known as the Christ to his own disciples. Gradually he became known as Christ to others, to his followers in general, even to such as the Samaritan woman, for example. And finally, in the strength of faith, they confessed that Jesus is the Christ. That was the strength of their faith, even though at that time they did not understand everything that that name implied. From their earthly viewpoint, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they did not fully understand what the calling and office of the Messiah was. But they confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ of God. And the Lord said that upon that confession, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Without that confession, there simply can be no church. For that same reason, the enemies of Jesus hated him. Not so much because he was called Jesus, but because Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus claimed to be the Christ, they hated him. When finally the high priest asked the Lord whether he was the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus answered in the affirmative, they cried out, crucify him. They did not want a Christ like that. And there's nothing new under the sun. Christ is the anointed son sent from God. That's the fundamental significance of his name. When we say that Christ was the anointed, we mean that Christ, according to scripture, is the one who occupies that central position in the kingdom and covenant of our God. In the Old Testament times, when a chosen one was called to an important office, he was anointed. And so scripture mentions anointing to the office of prophet, priest, or king. At God's command, Elijah had to anoint Elisha to be a prophet in his place. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 30, we read the charge that God gave to Moses. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. We read often of kings being anointed to their office. That anointing showed, first of all, that the man who was anointed was ordained by God to his office. Anointing had 
such great significance that David dared not raise his hand against King Saul, even after David himself had been anointed in Saul's place. David would wait for God to remove Saul from the throne, saying, The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. When the oil was poured upon the head of him who had been chosen by God to serve as an office bearer in God's kingdom, that man received the seal of ordination. The office bearer did not occupy that position in the kingdom of God of himself independently. He received that position. He received the place and the authority and the power from God as and as the anointed, he remains forever under God. The anointed one is always a servant. God is supreme. Further, that anointing signified that the anointed one is also qualified. One that is servant in the kingdom of God cannot stand alone. He cannot possibly have the power from himself to carry out and exercise that office. And so the essence of the anointing was that by that ceremony, God pointed out that the man so anointed had been called and qualified to function in that particular office to which he was anointed. That was the significance of the oil in anointing. Oil, as you may know, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. That's clear from many different passages. You can see that in the vision of the candlestick in Zechariah chapter 4. That is also plain from the passage we read, the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 61, the first verse where the word of the prophet is this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. As that oil was poured out in a generous amount, so the Holy Spirit would rest upon the anointed one to qualify him for the office to which he was ordained. Now Christ is the anointed one. There were many anointed ones in the Old Testament times, many who partook of Christ's anointing. And we might wonder how that could be possible when Christ hadn't even come yet. All those kings and prophets and priests, all those anointed ones in the old dispensation were simply figures. They were dependent upon him that was to come in the fullness of time. If the Christ, if the anointed one did not come, there could have been no anointed ones in the Old Testament. They were all types pointing ahead to the 
anointed one, the Christ. And as such, they partook of his anointing. That too is very clear from Scripture. That's clear from one of the Psalms that we sang from Psalm 89. It speaks of the anointing of David. We read in verse 20 and following, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. Yes, that's David, certainly. But centrally, it is Christ. Verses 27 and following make that clear. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Christ. We can see that that's the case also, again, in Isaiah chapter 61. Yes, it's a reference to the prophet Isaiah, but it's centrally the Christ, as is evident, as I pointed out earlier, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus sat down in the synagogue and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Isaiah speaks as in Christ, Christ Himself speaks in Isaiah 61. Christ is the anointed one, therefore, the servant of Jehovah, the prophet, priest, and king. He is the anointed one. He was ordained by God to his office, qualified by the Spirit to function in his office. All his authority came from God alone. It was because Christ was ordained that he had authority to speak and to teach. It was because Christ was ordained and qualified by God that he had authority to sacrifice. It was because Christ was ordained and qualified and anointed by God that he had the authority to rule over all things. And he was anointed from eternity and without measure. The anointing of office bearers in the Old Testament was but a shadow of the anointing of Christ in eternity. However generously the Holy Spirit was given to a man, no matter how freely the oil flowed even as down the beard of Aaron and all the way down his skirts, according to Psalm 133, 
There was always a limit. That full horn or vial was soon empty and the flowing stopped. But beloved Christ was anointed with more than mere oil. His anointing could not be limited by the ceasing of the flow of oil. He received the spirit without measure. So David could say in Psalm 45, as it would be quoted by the writer to the Hebrews, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So Christ, as the servant of the Father, the triune God to complete the work of salvation, to build God's eternal house, realizing God's covenant by saving the elect chosen in him from eternity. Jesus, God in the flesh, his dear son, our salvation, Became the servant of the Lord to preach, to sacrifice, to reign forever. Truly, the salvation of his people lies steadfast and sure above all the attacks of the enemies that rage. The work of God is placed in the hands of him whose work cannot fail. He is Jesus. God's anointed Son, the Christ, precious to all of us who believe that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one, really the only one to whom God has given the responsibility of doing the work necessary for our salvation He does not come on his own, but is called by God to do God's work. My meat, Jesus said, is to do the will of him that sent me. It also means that he has authority to do that work. Authority before which we bow. I referred to that authority in John 10. Where Jesus says, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power. And the idea there is authority to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. We must know all this about him. We must receive him as the Christ. All his work means nothing if he is not authorized by God. Knowing that is our assurance that his work will be acceptable to God on our behalf. Even if he had performed his work perfectly, how could we ever really be sure that his work would satisfy God's justice if God himself had not authorized him for his work. That's what the Apostle Peter was talking about in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly 
that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The resurrection about which Peter was speaking was proof that his work was accepted. Proof then too that he was the Christ. But what exactly is his work as the Christ? In the Old Testament, as we've noted, there were three positions to which for which a man was anointed. The offices of prophet, priest, and king. Through those offices, God revealed salvation to his people. Christ has all three of these offices, and through them, he fully reveals God's great salvation. That's his work, the work of a prophet, a priest, a king. He bears a threefold office. We ought to bear in mind in this connection that he was the only one throughout history, the whole history of the church, to have all three offices because he is the only one who is able to do all the work of salvation. All the other prophets, priests, and kings, as we've noted, were only pictures and servants of him. Jesus is our prophet is taught in Acts 3 verses 22 and 23 where the words of Moses are quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 18 for Moses truly said unto the fathers a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. As our prophet, he knows God and he teaches us the knowledge of God, whom to know is life eternal. If we say that he is the Christ, then we mean that only he has the authority to teach us about God. That's something very practical. Believing that he is the Christ, the prophet, we will also then believe in the authority and the infallibility of the scriptures. For it is his word. To deny the authority of scripture is not just to reject the book, but it is to reject Jesus as the Christ. Believing in him as prophet, we will also seek the knowledge of God that he gives by joining ourselves and remaining active members of the faithful church where the word of the gospel, the voice of Christ is heard from Lord's day to Lord's day. And we will shun all false human philosophies and false gospels. We will search and learn from scripture and from the faithful preaching of the gospel. Remember, every soul that will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed. He is also our priest. 
That truth is especially emphasized in the epistle to the Hebrews. In chapter 8, the opening verses, we read, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Also as priest, he saves us. We seek our salvation through his priestly office. His work as priest, pictured in the work of the Old Testament priests, has two parts. First of all, his work is the work of bringing sacrifice for sin. This Christ did when he offered his own body on the altar of the cross. That he is really the only true priest is evident from this, that only his perfect sacrifice ever took away sin. And that work is finished. That doesn't mean, though, that his work as priest is finished. It is also his work to intercede for us, to pray for us and bring us to God. The Old Testament priest did this when he offered incense in the temple and when he went into the holy, most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. When he did these things, he carried on his heart the 12 stones of the breastplate which represented God's people. He carried them to God in prayer as was represented by the incense. He carried them into the presence of God who dwelt between the cherubim at the mercy seat. Jesus, as our high priest, does this for us, interceding for us, opening by his intercession a new blood-sprinkled way into the presence of God in heaven. Through him we come boldly to the throne of grace, to receive mercy, to find grace, to help in time of need. We believe that he's the Christ, and we will seek no other atonement for sin but his perfect sacrifice. No other way to the Father but through him. Then we will trust that atonement has been made, and will not fear to come unto God. We will be faithful and diligent in prayer. As we are exhorted in Hebrews 10, 21, 22, having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, Do you do that? We do, believing that Jesus is the Christ. We need this priest, even the holiest among men, have polluted natures, poisoned, already in the womb with sin, natures depraved, having need of the bloody sacrifice of Christ 
to redeem them unto God. And our actual sins show our need of this only high priest and his one sacrifice. If he does not take those sins and our guilt by the blood of his cross, they can never be taken away. If not for Christ's sacrifice, our sins would go with us to the grave and would follow us to the judgment seat, crying, We are your works. And all our apologies, all our excuses, all our tears can never take away our sin. Even our best works are polluted. It means that even our apologies and tears before God are as filthy rags, except they be cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus' body once offered on the cross. But Jesus Christ appeared, ordained of God the Father, anointed with the Holy Spirit to serve as our only high priest to make the one sacrifice of his body for our sin. As our priest, he stood in our place, the only priest who could do that, for he is God become flesh, God's anointed son paid the price for our sin and guilt, redeeming us unto God with a redemption that shall never be removed or obliterated even by our continued sinfulness. And that sacrifice reached backward and forward through all the ages of history, fully cleansing all the elect For the face of God. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world. Unto himself. By one offering. He hath perfected forever. Them that are sanctified. Jesus Christ. Is our only. High priest. How beautiful. Is the testimony. Of this precious sacrifice of Christ to all who believe. What vanity to look to oneself, one's works, one's offerings, repeated idolatrous sacrifice, works that would be supposedly meritorious like Rome. The believer finds that nothing less than the great sacrifice of Jesus' body once offered for sin can give peace to a distressed conscience, free him from the guilt which brings death. Scripture speaks plainly and so we stand condemned in our own consciences by the deeds of law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight but Christ is also our eternal king king 
of kings. Christ rules in his church by his word and spirit. He exercises a kingly authority over and works by the power of grace in all whom he makes subject to himself by the gospel. Christ establishes his kingdom in the hearts of his elect by sending forth his regenerating spirit, making our hearts subject to his rule and ruling in our hearts according to his purpose. And not only that, but he sends forth his armies of prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, who are under the leadership of the Spirit, armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's sharp, powerful, going forth, conquering, and to conquer. He shakes the hearts of his people right to the foundations, overturning every vain hope, every high thought that exalts itself against him. By that rule of his grace, Christ calls us out of darkness into the light of his glory and grace into the kingdom of heaven. And that explains why even on this earth we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord willing, we focus more upon that marvelous thought this evening. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our inheritance is there. Our great king establishes in the hearts of his people a spiritual rule, even writing his law on our inmost hearts so that it becomes our delight to do his will. He rules in our hearts by his grace, giving us the desire to repent of our sins, to turn from every evil way, and to bow in willing and humble obedience to him. But his dominion as king is all-encompassing. It is so to the defense and preservation of his church. All is under the dominion of Christ and serves him absolutely Nothing is outside his rule. He is truly Lord of lords and King of kings. His rule over the wicked is different from his rule of grace over us, his people. It is a rule that is not for them, but for us to serve our defense and preservation. The difference in the rule of Christ over the wicked is evident in the very attitude that he takes towards them. Of course, there's much talk in our day and for many years gone by about God being a God of love. And certainly that God is love is clearly taught in the scriptures But there's no contradiction between God's love and his holiness and justice 
as men want to try to make today when they say that God loves everybody head for head and that Christ loves all men, must understand that the love of God is love for himself, first of all, as the highest good. He loves himself, his own perfect being. He seeks himself. He desires all things to serve his great glory of the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. But that love of God for himself and for his own holy being means that he cannot love anything or anyone that is contrary to him. And that's exactly why the scriptures teach that God hates the wicked. We sing that in Psalm 5. That's the teaching of the whole Bible. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. That also means then that Christ hates the wicked, loves his people. For Christ, the anointed son, is the perfect image of the father. Also in his sovereign rule as king, he reflects the attitude of his heavenly father whom he serves. And for that reason, also our eternal king establishes between us and the ungodly a life of opposition, what we call the life of the antithesis. We who live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, out of the principle of the new life of Christ within us, we are called to live in enmity over against the world of sin and unbelief. The world from a spiritual point of view is an entirely different kingdom. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity against God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's the truth held before us in James 4. How shall the subjects of Christ be among the slaves of Satan? It's true that the subjects of both kingdoms are mingled here upon earth. We cannot avoid entirely the company of the ungodly except we go out of the world, and that we may not do. Nevertheless, the citizens of Christ's kingdom find their fellowship with the saints. To use the language of Psalm 16, verse 3, their delights are in the excellent of the earth. Christ is our eternal king. And so we see, beloved, that already, very early in his ministry, the Christ was rejected. Rejected, mind you, in Nazareth, his own hometown. For his own people received him not. Israel was indeed his own people. They were the nominal church, the people of God. 
in distinction from all the nations of the world, they had been chosen and formed into God's people. They, who of all people would be expected to give him a hearty reception, they received him not. Fact is, they had always done so. They had always mistreated and stoned the prophets. When Jesus came, they say, This is the heir. Let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And so, right there in Nazareth, they attempt to cast him off the cliff. How is that possible? How could he be rejected? In Nazareth? Of all places? Why did they cast him out? As Romans 9 verse 6 declares, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And always the line of election and reprobation cuts through the church. Always the carnal seed is present in the church as it's in this world. And always the carnal seed persecutes the spiritual seed and seeks to cast out the Christ. They wanted a carnal Messiah They wanted to remain in the shadows. They loved the darkness rather than the light. And so they reject the Christ. Beloved, it was exactly through their rejection of Christ, through their nailing him to the accursed tree, that God accomplished his purpose of redemption. Of their cross, Christ made his altar. The blood they shed in their hatred of him, he willingly poured out as the blood of reconciliation. He became the redeemer of all whom the Father had given him. But yes, the question comes back to us. What will ye do? with this Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. He comes to us by means of the preaching of the word just as really as he came unto his own there in the synagogue at Nazareth. You receive him by faith or do you reject him in unbelief as did so many of the Nazarenes Remember, we have much more than did the Nazarenes. We have the whole Bible. And the mighty works of the cross and resurrection are accomplished. Jesus has performed the mighty work of his ascension to glory. We have his spirit assurance that he is coming again oh yes virtually everyone wants a Jesus a Jesus of this world a Jesus for a kingdom of man a Jesus who would perform earthly wonders but few want the Jesus the Christ of the Bible 
the preacher of the gospel of peace, the healer of the brokenhearted, the Jesus who gives liberty, who enlightens the eyes of the blind. The world says of him, he is not the Christ, he is the son of Joseph. But as many as receive him in faith, this Jesus gives them power to become the sons of God. Are you poor? Brokenhearted? Blind? Bruised? By your sin? And let us exclaim with the Apostle Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is our confession of faith. I believe in God's anointed Son. I believe in Christ, my prophet, my priest, my king. I am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, who is Christ, God's anointed, my prophet, priest, and king, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable grace. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. Blessed unto our hearts and unto our lives. We may rejoice and confess the name of Christ. May thy name receive all praise and glory. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Christ's name, amen.